there's times to blitz scale and then there's times to very quickly put together your team. Like blitz scaling is you hire a bunch of people because money's cheap. You scale inefficiently, right, in order to capture a market. Well, those, those days are gone right now. So you really need to bring that, who's the core brain trust? Who are people who are loyal? Who are people who are working hard? A lot of people when things are good, think they should be working for a startup. When it turns out actually a startup is this existential battle between failure and death and you know success, suddenly you really have to make sure everyone's there for the right reasons. Welcome to season four of Perpetual, where you'll get the hottest takes and insights on what's happening in the constantly shifting world of media and marketing. I'm Adam Ryan, let's go. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Media Moves. Today, I'm so excited to have the CEO and founder of Main Street, Doug Ludlow, with us. Welcome, Doug. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Today's episode's different than some of the others that we've had recently. We have a lot of operators coming on talking about how they're growing their their audience, advertising, kind of these tactics of a of a media or creator business. But something's been really clear to me through my audience asking questions and various other other pieces of there's this looming recession that everyone keeps talking about. Media businesses are pretty easy to go bottoms up. Uh, margins are tough. There's a lot of things that go against the industry. So Doug uh, would love to to lean on you. And have you tell us a little bit about Main Street and why I think you're a you're a perfect person to help us talk about uh, about cash and saving money during a time that's tough in the industry. You're exactly right. Like Main Street was kind of made for moments like these. So our our mission at Main Street is to help businesses and entrepreneurs create jobs and opportunity. And the way we do this is we act as kind of a bridge between government and the entrepreneur. In that, you know, on one hand, government has no joke, hundreds of billions of dollars every year that they set aside in the form of various tax credits and incentives that they want to go to the small business. They want to go to the the entrepreneur. But hey, when's the last time you read a full IRS document? Like It's really hard to understand these. It's hard to access them. So most startups and small businesses, uh, most entrepreneurs just ignore this entirely. So literally hundreds of billions of dollars every year that's left on the table. So Main Street acts as a bridge between the small business and the uh, the government and actually enables hundreds of millions of dollars so far in savings. So it really is one of those things that it's a win-win-win for everyone. The company gets to save money on whether it's taxes or getting a tax refund. There's a variety of different ways that happens. The government actually gets the credit in the hands of the people they want to take the credit. They don't need, Amazon doesn't need the government's help, right? Amazon's going to be fine. The two people building a startup in a garage in Austin are the people who need that help. And then it makes a good business for us, right? We're able to align our incentives entirely with our customers. If they make money, we make money. So it's a, it's a pretty virtuous cycle all around. There's a couple things that I, I can't wait to dig into here. Like Main Street, obviously, is a, is a company in the space that people can take advantage of. But it really starts ahead of that, too, right? Like it's about R&D to dig into like how people can save money. I don't think a lot of media companies understand that they actually probably do a lot of research and development, unlike a lot of SaaS businesses. Can you help us define a little bit of what R&D is for R&D credits? Yeah, there's this giant world of government credits and incentives, like 2,500 in the United States. But of that, there's 57 different credits in the United States focused on research and development. One big federal one and 56 states among uh, state programs amongst 38 states. In 1981, the government created this program to help in strengthen U.S. industry. And you get rewarded for doing 
things of a technological or experimental nature. There's a whole big four-part test they'll give you to determine whether or not you're actually doing R&D. And it turns out if you are running a commercial startup, if you're starting a company, odds are there's something you are doing that qualifies as R&D. And the results, if you go through the process, do your quick R&D study, Maintree helps you with that, and account, a specialized accountant can do it. You can get up to 10% of your expenditures back. It's, it's actually pretty extraordinary. Uh, the whole goal is the government wants companies pushing into new categories, new territory. They want you to invent that new rocket, right? They want you to invent that new medicine. They also want you inventing new media companies, right, that make a difference and push innovation. So yeah, a lot of people are surprised at how many, how many things they may actually qualify for. R&D is just one of those perfect bedrock things because it does help innovative companies. For a tangible example, when we were bootstrapping and getting the hustle off the ground, we used all of our investment. We had two engineers on staff, which is most media companies have smaller engineer teams, but we claimed all of that because they were trying to build us tools internally that would be help be more efficient. It was like a very easy thing to get credit for. And really, it was just expense that we needed to like build tools, but like, you know, ultimately it was innovate, innovating things for our own business that can help technology move forward. So if you're listening to this and you have any sort of engineering cost or any sort of building in-house of anything proprietary, that's immediately the first thing that you can look at and start getting credit for. And those costs add up like really quickly. Taking a step back from, from R&D, you have the honor and, and pleasure of just talking with your customers and entrepreneurs all the time. What are you kind of like hearing and seeing in the market? Like, you know, as someone who you get, it's easy to listen to the news and everybody that's kind of like away from it, but you actually get to work with small businesses every day. What are you kind of hearing and seeing that's going on? Let me talk about the data, right? Because we we are connected to thousands of companies and see kind of their inner workings. And it's fascinating. So the larger you are, the more likely you are to be slowing down. It, what we see in the, you know, the, the average small business size or the, uh, the seed or series A companies, those companies have continued to grow this year, actually about 60% from the start to finish. So pretty aggressive growth. It's in the larger stages that you're really seeing that slowdown, right? Largely because if you were a growth stage company in 2021, you likely raise around a funny, some enormous valuation. So you, you have to cut that back. The smaller guys didn't, right? So we're seeing actually still a lot of optimism in the earlier stage, there's this whole, one of the fastest growing categories of business is something we're calling the new Main Street businesses, right? Which are kind of growth oriented, but technology focused businesses, some of which are like venture and angel funded startups, but a lot of which are just like bootstrapped. They use the same technology stack. They all, they want to grow. That remains a pretty healthy category of businesses. And the, the, that's what the data shows as well. Last week at uh, the work week all hands, I I did a presentation about the kind of industry layoffs happening and what's going on. And to kind of get started, one of the things I did was who has performed best of this group on public markets this year. And it was Shopify, Robinhood, Twilio, Coursera, and Duolingo. And asked everyone, and you know, Shopify, uh, you know, no one's doing well, to be honest, but the takeaway was that Duolingo was the best performing of those because they have positive adjusted EBITDA. They're still growing at 50% year over year. And I think what you're starting to see is obviously investors saying, hey, if you can have a little bit of positive profitability here while still growing at 40 to 60% a year, we're good. Uh, you don't have to grow at 100% and lose a bunch of cash. Totally. Let's go 
on a smaller side because I think that person that you described, those two people in a garage in, in Austin, I think is like a, a probably, if I had to guess, a core customer because it, it means so much to them to save. What are you really like recommending for that group to improve their expenses to make sure that they can sustain through this? Because it's not just about some of this is not about thriving. It's just about surviving. What do you kind of have for them? I tweeted the other day and like survival is the new hyper growth, right? What was growing as fast as you can was sexy a year and a half ago. And now it's just make sure you're around. The number one expense people have is people and over hiring. I would suggest to those entrepreneurs in the garage starting out or just to my, my peers, you really have to slow down hiring and make sure it's the absolute right fit. There's times to blitz scale and then there's times to very quickly put together your team. Like blitz scaling is you hire a bunch of people because money's cheap. And it doesn't matter if someone's performing at 50% of the capacity, just hire another person at 50%. It doesn't matter. Like you scale inefficiently, right? In order to capture a market. Well, those, those days are gone right now. So you really need to bring that. Who's the core brain trust? Who are people who are loyal? Who are people who are working hard? Who are people who are actually like a lot of people when things are good, think they should be working for a startup. And then, you know, when you, when you think a startup is this thing that's going to automatically make you rich or you do whatever, when it turns out actually a startup is this existential battle between failure and death and, you know, success, suddenly you really have to make sure everyone's there for the right reasons. So you slow down and you make sure you're, you are hiring because, you know, I, I can say save money on software and you should. I should say like get your tax credits because you should. All of that will be wiped away with one or two bad hires. So just don't make those bad. That, those are the big boulders of what you have to avoid. I kind of like live on a two side corner of that. Like one, planning and knowing your hires to clear deliverables ahead of time avoids that in a big way. But the other mistake on the flip side that I, I just talked about this last week is that sometimes hiring that person that is because right now is a beautiful time to hire top talent also. And it's come, the prices have come way down and, and, you know, salaries have come down and sometimes stretching your budget 15% more can truly make 50 X more. And that is also, I say, like, when you're thinking about your hires, recognize, like, is this a dime decision or a dollar decision and knowing the difference. And I think like, to your point, it's not a time where you can just hire everyone anymore and then just find your winners naturally. You have to be more selective, but also just don't get caught up of like, well, damn, this person that was our dream hire, like they're 10% more than we budgeted. It's like, if you believe in the business and yeah. let's do it, you know, uh, you're not talking about something like enormous here on, on across the board. So I think hiring is like exactly that. What, what have you kind of taken at main street? You know, your team has been really successful. You've been growing fast. Packy, who's an investor in us, uh, said, you know, had a great line of like, why would you not buy Main Street, which is a great brand to have. But tell us a little bit about how you're thinking about hiring and you were scaling so fast. Is there anything specifically that that founders and, and entrepreneurs could take away that, that you think you all have done well or not well with hiring? I'll tell you what we've done well is we have gotten some world-class talent. Some of it comes from our, you know, a lot of us came from you know, Google in the early days, some really bright, really talented, hardworking people who then bring in their friends, who bring in their, like, so we, we maintain a really high quality bar for just sheer, like, our employees are really great. Our team's really great. What we haven't done a good job, and this is where, like, we struggle to do this because we're growing, we were growing quickly, 
how do you level people at the right stage, right? Mm. And this is a challenge that I've had that we're getting better at. And this is something we, we keep working at is when you go from like, originally it was just me and two other co-founders in a tiny overpriced WeWork in downtown San Jose, right? And within a year from that, we were now at, I think, 25 people. And then a year from there, we were at like 100. Like, so it kept growing and the stage we were at changed, right? So it's not just the scale. It's when you're a you know a pre-seed, pre-revenue, pre-everything company, the talent you're looking for is not the talent you need later. And yet sometimes you put people in positions to where they actually should be replaced or they should hire their boss because they're not right for that stage. It's a big, you have to be right role, right person, right time. And that is something that, you know, I personally have had a ton of affection and loyalty for the people who came here early. It doesn't always mean that they're in the right position or were in the right position. And those can be hard conversations. You really have to strip out the ego from that and be willing to have those conversations. And it's something we, we didn't do very well. I think we've done a lot better than that now. Uh, I think we've right-sized, uh, but that is something they could bite you because it happens everywhere too. Absolutely. I think even if you're a fifth time founder, you probably still make that mistake because it's just about it's because it, it really actually is. It comes down to like the, to your point, the like loyalty and heart aspect. You're like, ah, this person and I were he, you know, it's that, that's just an emotional aspect that I think no matter how much experience you have, that makes it incredibly difficult. I think people need to embrace that graduating from a company is totally okay. And, you know, what we talk about culturally is value. I think people leave businesses for three reasons. One is culture of like, do you like who you work with, your hours, maybe all that good stuff. The next one is value, which is mostly how much you get paid, maybe your title, those things, responsibilities. And then the last one is growth of like, do I feel like my career can grow here? Do I feel like I'm getting better? And for me, what I always say is like the number one thing I, I'm, I'm totally okay with people leaving for is value. And sometimes a business just doesn't see eye to eye with you with your own value. That doesn't mean that's what you're not worth. And I think with early employees, that's like part of it is like they see themselves in one value. They actually could on the market probably go get that value. And you're like, we're just not there. And that's not a bad thing. That's a great thing. It just means that we, you know, you graduated on to something better. So I agree. That's a, that's a really big, really big issue continuously. Have you all ever, we call it titled debt. Uh, have you ever dealt with that before of like, where you give people titles early that then like later you have to like go back on? Very much so. And sometimes it's the point where the person doesn't want to be the company anymore if they lose their title. And it's something we tried to correct for, but the minute you the minute you grant one person a title that is outsized, suddenly you you have to catch everyone up to it, right? Yes. So I know it's impossible. I, I fantasize, can you just strip away all job titles? It, you know. Yep. But you know that this it's they're important to people. It's a way that they can externally show their friends, their family, their, you know, if they get another job someday that they were progressing. So I get it, but it really is interesting. Like, and the, like use the the most overused title is VP uh, across the board because the VP at Google it means one thing. I, I work for a VP who is probably making eight, maybe sometimes nine figures per year, right? Just obscene amounts, very very senior roles. A VP you can have a VP at a seed stage startup, but that's probably like you know the person who's maybe making nothing or taking out the garbage. By the way, both roles are critical. But you have to accept that as the company grows, that VP cannot keep that title because the person who's going to be critical when there's 10 people 
is not the same person who's going to run that giant stage, you know, at Google or anything in between. So you have to be really good about letting go of that. And most people are not. Yeah. Well, and I think like from the company standpoint, like some people really value that in the value category, like that is high value to them, especially people early in their career. And I understand that. But yeah, we, you know, title debt is something, you know, I and I, I bring this up because if you're a founder right now, one of the cheap ways it appears that you can promote your team when you don't have cash is to give them title bumps yes. without pay bumps. It is like a move to do when you want to retain your staff and you don't have the cash, but it doesn't come out without a cost later. And that's like why I bring that up, because I think in, in these moments, in these times when people scrunch their cash, they they give that value elsewhere, which one day actually has a pretty, pretty costly effect. You make trade-offs, right? Cash is tight for everyone. And it w- may be for three years, right? So how do you how do you get as much as you can out of your people? And by the way, that, that is something if you're handing out titles appropriately, even not appropriately, let's say you are using it as a vote, that that can contribute like materially to their career down the line. Maybe in the terms of trade-off, it's better than going out of business. Now you're stuck with VPs, but hey, you're still going to find another day. You know, I do think though, it's like something that I would say, if you're looking at how to save that employee cost, title is a lever that you can pull and just recognize that it's not free forever. And so that's just something something to note on. Going from a uh, big company to, to small company to now like emerging company, what is something how you've thought about your cash your cash forecast. One thing I think media companies that do really well compared to a lot of other industries is they're really good with their cash because uh, they recognize that like, hey, we have net 30 on our advertising. We have to like balance as well because it's a tough business to, to scale. How have you or any tips or tricks about like really balancing your cash as an entrepreneur or what have you done to help yourself be better at that? 2022 has been an entire education in becoming better at that, Right. You know, 2021 was a spend to keep up with the competition, spend to grow. People were getting one to 200x revenue multiples. Uh, so the thought is, hey, spend $10 to get $1, you're still coming out ahead, right? It's a completely different world right now. It kind of like, you know, the, that old BC Boys song is like, no sleep till Brooklyn. We're no sleep till profitability at this point, right? So looking very carefully at what can we do with customer contracts? How can we, you know, who are the right people on the team? What is the right spend? And pushing as, as as hard as we can to this break-even profitable position, which is not always in vogue. In fact, I remember last year uh, when talking to VCs, and we weren't seriously raising, we always you know check in. People would openly mock the idea of being profitable, right? It was like, ah, you're not growing fast enough or this or that. What a sea change and what a mistake that so many people made chasing hyper growth. You know, we were one of them. So this year it's been a, you really have to start cutting away at what is essential or what is not essential and what is core, right? So this year we, you know, last year we were, we were piloting a few new products. They were really cool. I liked them a lot, but they were still pilots and we chose to, to shelve them for the time being and focus on something that was already far more efficient than had a known go-to-market channel. So it's really just about being it's my roundabout way of saying extreme focus on what is actually real, what is actually valuable, what is actually efficient is the best way to like, you avoid that illusion of progress, right? You're spending on something and it feels good to spend because you, I don't know, it's, it, it, you feel like you're making progress, but in reality, you're not doing anything. So a deep focus and, and discipline has been kind of the name of the game this year. 
Yeah, I think the focus is real. Uh, I talked to someone last week and, you know, they were like, hey, next year we want to dive into podcasts and we want to do events. And you know, they have a really good newsletter business. And I said, if I'm just being honest with you, I just focus on the newsletter business next year. You got a good cash flow business there that's like growing and scaling. And like, if anything, spend a little bit more to grow that audience. Like, you know, your unit economics there, like just double down on your one product. Those pilot bets, they could pay off uh, for sure. But like the cost of them not and the backstop is just too deep now. That's the like change. And I think focus actually is the answer for these folks. And on the flip side of focus to me is just doubling down on the thing you know that works. And I think like 2021, as much as everyone spent more on marketing and all that stuff, also there was tons of innovation because people were like, fuck it, let's just try like new shit. And like this could be, and now our addressable market's like 50 times bigger, which that that like probably led to a lot of great ideas uh, and like potentially years down the road, we'll see the benefits of that. But I'm absolutely with you, just like focusing on core competencies, the ones that you know, your unit economics. And, and lastly, and I'm sure you have a lot of competitors that you that you relate to with this, but it's easy to feel like you have product market fit when your CAC is 10 times higher than what you can actually afford. That's oh, absolutely. You know, and you're like, hey, don't fool yourself. You know, and I've like told people this lately is like, hey, you used to be able to afford like a 14 month payback cycle. Now you need like a four month. Yes. Get your product to be better. A lot of people last year were pursuing the, you know, and people are still doing it. That's the crazy thing to where you're never going to be profitable off that person ever. The payback period was 10 years and there's no way that, but hey, we're building a base. We're going to like, that's done. Those days are over, at least for the time being. Is there a company out there that big, small and different or a couple even that folks could, a lot of people tell me after they they listen to this, they go look up the companies we bring up. Are there any one or two or three companies that you think are operating really well that, or you think their founder is really inspirational or, or you can learn from? I'll use an example of our friends uh, at Vendor, uh, V-E-N-D-R, Ryan. Hey, they built a, something that actually, I'm, I'm, here I'm promoting someone else's company. Uh, it's a service that most people should sign up for. You, it's something that can kind of like Main Street for like SaaS spend, right? Help you cut down and, and, and save where you can. It really is pretty amazing. Another a great company is Shift. It's the it helps bring veterans back to work. I don't know if you know uh, Mike, the CEO of Shift, but talk about that's another like win 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 to where they're helping veterans transition out into like startups and great jobs. The government can actually help pay for some of this. It's uh, I really hope they do very well. As, like I, I the, the point I'm getting, there's a lot. A lot of the companies I'm finding more most interesting that I think will do very well over the next few years are those companies who can help drive efficiencies for your company while at the same time like helping a broader ecosystem. Those mission-driven companies that actually help you save money, I think it'd be really, really cool. Yeah. And in recession time, government credits tend to go up, need to save money, intent goes up. Uh, it's a beautiful time to be a win-win-win business in this market. You mentioned Twitter earlier. I have a lot of people on here that are trying to build their own personal brands as they run a company. We have a ghostwriting service that I've, I've promoted on here before. I'm a big believer in it. You have 12,000 plus followers on Twitter. You're active daily. Why did you decide to do that? Like what drove you to make that decision or was it natural? And then like, have you seen any real tangible outcomes from that yet? So I started on Twitter. I was one of actually the Twitter's very first users, probably first thousand users way back in 2006. 
at the time, my, my buddy and I were launching what we thought was going to be a Twitter competitor or something like that. Flash forward, it didn't work. Yeah. Uh, but so I've been on Twitter for a long time and really only in the last three, four years, kind of the start of Main Street, did I start to really lean into the platform. So I've, I've now been in the startup world for, gosh, I don't know, 15 years, which makes me feel like a very old, like I, I'm now like, I actually have experience. And I wanted a, a forum to actually start sharing this. And I think it started to resonate, right? And as, as Main Street grew and people heard about Main Street, like I think I found value in being pretty open and transparent of both the joys and the heartaches that come with running a growth stage company, right? It, it, it's not easy, uh, but it's also incredibly rewarding. So I, I try to be authentic. I find the stuff that doesn't work is when I try to be like, I'm. I cannot. I'm not Twitter funny at all. There are Twitter. I, every time I try, just nothing doesn't work. I also find like snark doesn't work for me. Like, but you know, talking uh, authentically about my experience tends to really resonate. Largely because I don't think you you get insight into people. Like we we people track Mark Zuckerberg's life on a day to day basis because it's public knowledge. On the other hand, it's very easy. I might have a lot of friends who are starting a company, or you get what it's like in the garage. I'm in this weird stage that's, you know, this emerging growth company that most of the time founders, probably rightfully so, shut up and don't say anything because it's it feels like a souffle. If you breathe all wrong, it can all collapse. <laughs> I, that's hilarious. Yeah, I mean, it's true. But uh, it seems to work. And sometimes if I do this right, a, a tweet will sign up 10 customers. And that was a $100,000 tweet, which is pretty cool. That's the amazing thing that I think more people need to lean into. I had a gut feeling like I went through all your content on your tweet and like you also are very uh, focused with who you try to provide value for, which is some, somebody that you can speak authentically about. But also it, it's like aligns with your customer base, which is startups. And I was like, there's no way he's not driving great organic growth here. And I think it's actually something that as as a founder, if you're like, how can I make my business cash flow positive? It is by not spending money on acquiring customers and like building your personal brand is a really good way to do that on Twitter. And it's, it's cool to hear that you've seen it that way. Kind of in, in closing with everyone kind of like freaking out about what's to come, lots of different opinions. You mentioned it could be three years. Would love to just have a high level overview of like how you think about the space. And if you're walking away from this, what should people prepare for, for timelines or how are you thinking about timelines so they can get them and their team to work after this? That's a really good question. And I think the first answer is no one knows. Anyone who tells you that what's going to happen, they're lying to you, right? Otherwise people would have known they wouldn't have been doing giant rounds and massive spend a year ago, right? Right. Until you crash was just around the corner. You can look to other downturns as an example. Like it took 12 years for the NASDAQ to bounce back to the 2000 highs. It took till, basically till the Facebook IPO 12 years later. Like that's nuts. Like it took that long. You also have cases where like the public, like private valuations usually take about nine to sometimes 18 months to you know trail public valuations. So if you saw last year, in August is when like companies started to lose their value. It wasn't until March that like private companies then lost. Their, it took a long time. So you should watch like how are public companies doing, and you can see like hey what what's the value of uh, uh, of my company is I have a chance of cashing back up. I would tell people profitability or bust. Like cash is king. There's no like and that's that's what we're doing. Like 
You're going to make the hard choices. You'd much rather make the hard choices now and focus and, you know, take, take the medicine now rather than a year from now fold, six months from now fold, right? It really is one of those critical times. I mean, I'm, again, I've been in the industry for 15 years. I'm 40 years old, but I haven't seen a downturn like this in my career. I was in high school and early college at dot-com one. So if I haven't seen it, everyone younger than I has neither. People, so everyone's kind of flying blind here. So take yourself out of a position to where you have to raise money. Set yourself up to where hopefully you'll pull a rabbit out of a hat and have a you know grand slam to keep mixing cliches. But if you just take yourself off the VC treadmill for a while, uh, make yourself stronger, you'll be in a great position when the market opens back up again. One of the things that I would say is like, talk to some folks that are in that time period that have gone through it a couple times. If they've gone through 2000 and 08, 09, like it's really interesting to talk to folks like that of like how, how they went through it, you know, and the, the reality of it. I think all of us got a glimpse of COVID for like four months of what that was like. And they're like, great, now make it two years, which is different. Add two, save money uh, where you can, which I think like you talked about tax credits, uh, I think employees and hiring. And then lastly, I think know your levers of your unit economics, your, where you can like actually pull and, and have those uh, have that focus and consistency. So, uh, well, Doug, I really appreciate ha- coming on. Where can everyone follow you to learn more about small businesses, startups and, and, and saving cash? Well, first, check out MainStreet.com. Sign up. It'll take you two seconds or two minutes. And maybe we'll save you stuff. Maybe we can't, but it's going to cost you nothing. So it's a zero-risk proposition. If you want to follow me, not sure why you would, but if you want to. I think he's a good follow. Thank you. It's at Doug Ludlow, D-O-U-G-L-U-D-L-O-W. And that's on Twitter. Uh, That's pretty much my only. I'm on Facebook, but that's just, don't follow me there. It's just fan. Awesome. Well, yeah, everyone check out Main Street. Uh, Workweek did as well. That's that's how we got to discover uh, discover the company and, uh, and Doug. But thanks for coming on and uh, look forward to the next one. Hey, my pleasure. Thanks for listening. If you want deep insight and hot takes on the world of media, make sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you listen. And if you enjoyed this episode, share with a friend. I'll see you next time.